Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Returning to Dr. Doctor for his 10th visit is psychiatrist Dr. Kevin Majors of Cambridge, Massachusetts, who is a part-time instructor at Harvard Medical School. And we're going to talk today about insomnia. And if we put people to sleep, then we have been successful in overcoming insomnia. I don't know, Chris, you're, you're in obstetrics and gynecology, probably the, the worst specialty for having good sleep hygiene. <laughs> uh, did you say something? I was napping. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> good. Taking advantage of every spare moment. That's right. I was thinking if Kevin is on our show many more times, we're going to have to call him a co-host. <laughs> we should be so lucky to have Kevin Majors as a co-host, right? Um, but to your point, it, it is terrible. I mean, uh, I'm actually only 35 years old. I just look nearly 60 uh, from the chronic sleep deprivation. Uh, and I wouldn't even say it's deprivation. I'll be interested in sort of confessing my sleep life to Kevin and seeing what he says. But I think like a lot of workers in healthcare, it's a it's an inconsistent sleep rhythm that uh, is probably so damaging um, because sometimes I work at night, but sometimes I don't. And I know in the fertility world, that is a huge enemy of of women in particular's fertility and ovulation cycles. It's the messing up their day-night cycles, sometimes sleeping at night, sometimes sleeping at day. Uh, I'll be really interested to hear what Kevin has to say about that. Yeah, insomnia was not something I ever had to worry about too much uh, until recently. And, and there's two main types of insomnia. There's like the initial insomnia or primary where you can't fall asleep. Right. But then there's something called terminal insomnia where you wake up in the middle of the night you fall asleep fine originally, but then you can't get back to sleep again. And I dealt with that recently. I'm returning from a, a three time zone trip from the West Coast back to the East Coast, and I just would wake up in the middle of the night and I tried all the stuff that Kevin talks about in his podcast, and it wasn't working. And I think Kevin's going to reveal that he's had a little change of thought in how he approaches insomnia just over some things that have happened in the, the last year. So he's always our, full of good wisdom. I think our listeners are going to love this episode as every listener loves every episode with Kevin. <laughs> um, but I think it, it really is applicable to so many of us. I'm sure there are many more of us that have sleep issues from time to time uh, than do not. You know, it's a funny talking about the terminal insomnia. If any of my patients are listening, um, I've noticed through the years that if I'm called in the middle of the night, I need to hurry up and get off the phone. Because there's a fixed amount of time that if I can finish the conversation, then I know I can get right back to sleep. It'll be just fine. But if it goes over by a second or two, that amount of time, I'm going to be up for a long time. Uh, it's, it's almost as though once the brain figures out I'm awake, it doesn't want to go back to sleep. So I'll be really interested to hear what Kevin has to say about that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I have the same experience. It's like if I have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom, and if it if I take too long, boom, I, I just got to stay in that kind of haze, but enough not to bump into stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something that, that applies to everyone. And I think there's so many great books out there and speakers and podcasts on the health consequences of poor sleep, or a better way to say it, how important restorative rest is to our overall health, even our mortality rate can be influenced by the absence of good sleep. Um, so listeners, this is a good episode to pay attention to. So, you know, wake up and pay attention. <laughs> and uh, we recently got an email after our uh, most recent uh, COVID episode on the Delta variant uh, that we wanted to share. It, it always makes us feel good to know that we're actually positively affecting some lives out there. And we got an email from a, a student a pre-med student named Ty, and he said, I just started listening to your podcast the other day, and I wanted to let you know it's been so encouraging hearing from you all as someone who is worried about if someone with my beliefs can make it in medicine. Uh, he said he even joined the CMA thanks to us. If you ever are in need of a Catholic pre-med student, feel free to reach out. And uh, Ty is at uh, UCLA, so we are really appreciative that we are 
even getting heard by pre-medical students. That's our goal to help to positively influence the next generation of Catholic doctors and nurses. Yeah, absolutely, Ty. Hear us when we say that that's an over uh, an overwhelming yes to your question. Can you can you practice medicine? Uh, can you have a successful career uh, and be a faithful Catholic? The, the answer to that is absolutely yes. Uh, also, you probably know if you're listening that um, plenty of people would say no to that. And don't listen to them. Listen to me and Tom. We'll give you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. Don't be don't be dissuaded. Yeah, we are uh, so highly motivated. We've got a number of other comments like Ty's, uh, but we wanted to highlight that. And so thanks. Please keep listening, Ty, and uh, and uh, let your friends know that maybe they'll find something helpful here. So we are to that point of the show when I pose the medical trivia question of the day. Category, of course, deals with sleep. I found an interesting study I want to ask you about. And it's multiple choice. It's one of three answers. According to a study published in Nature Communications April 20th of this year, they looked at adults in their 50s, I'd be guests like you and me, Chris, (laughs) who averaged less than six hours of sleep per night. What effect did averaging less than six hours of sleep per night have on the risk for them developing dementia between the ages of 60 and 70? Did it have no effect on their risk for dementia? Did it reduce the risk of dementia by 30% because they were using the brain more when they were awake? Or did it increase their risk of dementia by 30%? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show to get the answer to this multiple choice medical trivia question of the day. And we'll be right back after the break with Kevin Majors. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And we're here with our honorary co-host, Dr. Kevin Majors. Uh, Kevin, we are so happy to have you back with us again. Uh, you've been with us so many times. I feel like our avid listeners already know you, and you really require no introduction. Uh, the most important thing to say to you is thank you for joining us again, and thank you for all the help you've provided uh, our listeners. Oh, wonderful, Chris. Thank you so much for that introduction. Yeah, and I'm happy to be here. Well, we are always interested in what's Catholic about our topic. And our topic is sleep, and more specifically, insomnia. And so let's start really from a a Catholic faith uh, perspective and say, what is our understanding as Christians of the purpose and the role of sleep for, for human beings? I had come across this uh, line. It was sent to me by a patient that uh, um, we had been working with anxiety things, and she's, she was wonderful to work with. And she was reading Flannery O'Connor and came oh, yes. across this, this beautiful She said, I've come to think of sleep as metaphorically connected with the mother of God. Hopkins, Gerard <laughs> Manny Hopkins, said she was the air we breathe. But I have come to realize her most in the gift of going to sleep. Life without her would be the equivalent to me of life without sleep. And as she contained Christ for a time, she seems to contain our life in sleep for a time so that we are able to wake up in peace. Oh, that's, wow. that's really beautiful. But this is beautiful thing of sleep. There is a mysterious kind of womb of unconsciousness where we're being nourished by God through Our Lady. And so there's something is this wonderful world of sleep. It's mysterious, it's pre-rational, it's primordial. And so it's like the forming of the child in the womb. Uh, and so it has this link to the coming to life, but also has a link in St. Paul to death, that he regularly seems to refer to death as sleep. Hmm. So there's this deep connection there between sleep, living, you know, the womb being born and dying. Well, that's beautiful. And then you've got people like Edgar Allan Poe who wrote, sleep, those little slices of death, how I loathe them. What is it that leads some people to fear or even loathe sleep instead of the beautiful understanding that you just gave us? Well, it does seem like they're not happy <laughs> and they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're struggling with nature itself and a gift of God, which I think is what sleep is. There's something also about that sleep teaches us even about prayer, which is that it's not ultimately something active. It's something passive. And it's not about doing and getting things done. It's about being and learning to just be with God without any striving. 
and then sleep takes place. You know, in the same way, there is the same passivity there that's analogous in some way to the spiritual passivity mm-hmm. of real contemplation. Sure. So I think sleep can be connected to the most beautiful and deepest things, but it certainly helps to, I think, understand something about God and prayer to see yes. what sleep's beauty is. But it is fascinating how difficult it can be. I'm sure that I'm only speaking for myself. When, uh, <laughs> when as the evening is coming to an end and I think I need to go to sleep, but I don't want to go to sleep. So I'll read some more or I'll answer a few more emails, but but I don't want to go to sleep. I've got far too much to do <laughs> to go to sleep. Yeah. I'm, I'm much more interested in doing than being in that case. Exactly. And, that, and I think that we have to let ourselves get out of the doing mode. You know, and, and that's our, that characterizes much of our work day. But even that would be better if it were leavened with more moments of being mm. and simply you know, allowing what is to be, allowing it to happen, not trying to impress our will on every situation. Wow. So with sleep, you have to let go of the will. I think I'm probably paraphrasing Matthew Kelly where he talks about a regular bedtime is an act of faith because you're saying, okay, I have way too much to do but I'm not going to do it tonight. I'm going to go to bed because tomorrow's another day and I'm not in charge. Um, But that's not easy. I mean, it's easy for me. It's not easy for Tom. Um, Uh (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to let go. It's so so necessary. What's going on in the brain and the body during sleep? So I think that, you know, you could say maybe, um, in the brain, especially, you know, we can say two big processes. So one is a cleanup process. And that's where our neurons shrink, allowing for drainage. Because as the neurons and the other cells in the brain are working intensely while we're awake, I mean, the brain does take up 20% of all of our energy. You know, it's, it's, uh, and so it's, it's using a lot of our daily calories. And that produces a lot of metabolites. And those metabolites, you don't want them accumulating. Interestingly, one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease is precisely the accumulation of metabolites because of having insufficient glymphatic drainage. Uh, And the things that increase the drainage that occurs in sleep are some of my favorite things, exercise, intermittent fasting, also low dose alcohol, but not intermediate or high dose. So that, that uh, a very low dose of alcohol seems to, and not as taken at necessarily even directly at bedtime. Uh, and that those studies are in mice, but it's probably similar with us. So there's this, there's this process of, of um, draining away the, the, the bad stuff, but then consolidating the good stuff. And that's what the sleep cycles are about, where, where our brains are then consolidating the learning that took place that day and, and turning short-term things into long-term memory. It's interesting. If we were, if we were going to be so bold as to question our designer, it seems like it would be a good question to say, God, why waste so much time sleeping? You know, if you were designing us from the beginning, it seems like it would be much more efficient to just forget the need for sleep. Don't build that into the system. But clearly, it's got a very important role, doesn't it? It does. And, but our, our lives are really measured on the time we've spent loving and serving rather than just being awake. Mm. And I think the saints have discovered that you can love God even while you sleep. <laughs> so it's not actually lost time. How do we love God while we're sleeping, Kevin? By falling asleep loving him. Mm. And, that, so, and so if, I think if we fall asleep it, with God, we wake up with God. And you can consider... This is, I think, St. Jerome said this and St. Josemaria and other great saints. Then you can consider that everything in between was also prayer. I love that. Mm. And that's what I try to do no matter what I'm reading. I try to just converse with God silently as I'm falling asleep. Yeah, to give your Uh, last thought to God is a beautiful thing. And you'll find that the more you do that, the more your first thought is also for God. uh, And then there's something called a sleep cycle that lasts about Mm. 90 minutes. Tell us about those, Kevin. Yeah, so there are stages that we go through with sleep. The first stage is actually when you just are relaxed with your eyes closed. That's actually stage one sleep. The second stage is light sleep, and then it goes into the third stage of deeper sleep. In, and then you go into something called REM, which is 
a more active state for the brain even than being awake. So REM, the portion of each sleep cycle that's in REM increases as you go through the night. Broadly speaking, there are two halves of sleep. The first half is where we get our restorative sleep, and that's going to be mostly this, you know, stages, you know, two and three. So where you're going to be doing the deeper repairs in the body and all of your organs, I mean, really all your organs sleep. You know, there is, there is, there is this diurnal variation of every organ in the whole body. Uh, so we see now that the circadian rhythm is built into everything in us. And so there are, there's all these changes taking place while we sleep. Uh, and so I think the first half of the night is about this deeper repairing that takes place. The second half of the night is where more REM occurs. And it's very often the case that people wake up in between those two halves of sleep, and that's perfectly normal. So, and so after three sleep cycles or so, about four and a half hours, it's normal that people wake up. Mm. So, and they wake up, you know, briefly for a time and then go back to sleep. In the monasteries in the Middle Ages, they used to actually get out of bed at that time and, and pray at that time. Yes. Yes, I have a friend who's a Carthusian now, and they do that every night after their wow. three sleep cycles. Yeah, there's still people doing that. Yep. Go ahead, Chris. Well, oh, Kevin, the, the question that I, you know, I think we're all afraid to ask is, what then is the appropriate or even the optimal amount of sleep, and how do we know that? Uh, I think that the in some of the best researchers out there, you know, they will cite the numbers seven to eight. So that in general, seven to eight hours. But I just heard a talk by Sachin Panda. He's in the Salk Institute in Lajola. And he uh, has a book called The Circadian Code, which is a fascinating book on sleep in general. And he says that actually it's really eight hours in bed should be the goal. And more cl closer to seven hours of sleep is probably the right amount for most people. And I don't know if any of you have ever used a whoop or some device to measure how much actual sleep you're getting. No. But even even if you give yourself eight hours in bed and are sleeping that whole time, when you check the whoop data, it's gonna, it'll show you that, in fact, maybe up to like 45 minutes or even an hour, you're actually awake and that you end up getting about seven hours a night when you give yourself fully adequate sleep. At least that's been the experience of myself and a lot of people who, who have done it, where you can feel perfectly rested at that level. Now, in the end, though, it's a, it is like a personal question. We can give general things you know, and say that for about 80% of people, around seven hours is just great. There might be some people who need more sleep, and there are some who seem to get by on much less sleep. Uh, and so those outliers will have slightly different rules. So uh, on behalf of all of the parents of teenage boys and myself, why does my 12-year-old son strive to sleep 18, 19 hours a day? <laughs> Yeah. Well, they certainly are going through an intense time of brain shaping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it seems like they do have higher requirements for sleep. Um, unfortunately, they're the ones also most affected by modern technology because it's so common that they're using computers and iPads to all hours of the night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then who knows what the long-term effect is going to be of this is a critical time for brain formation. You know, and the kind of the sculpting and building, especially the prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. which is finally finished at around age 25. So those are not the years where you want to be skimping on sleep. I feel so. better about my son. Yours too, probably, Tom, that, because they're doing just <laughs> fine um, at getting plenty, yeah. plenty of sleep. Yeah. I don't understand why schools start so early. <laughs> you know, it, it seems like for, it's just normal that teenagers especially are, their, their cycle is designed that they actually go to bed later and wake up later. Interesting. And that just seems to be the natural way it is. And, you know, we could tell stories about in the old days with tribes that they were the ones who stayed awake at night to sound the alarm if intruders came. Yeah. Uh, but it does seem like this is a natural thing and that the more elderly want to go to bed at 8 p.m. or early, you know, they like to go to bed early. Um, and so I should say older, it doesn't have to be elderly. So there's a preference. <laughs> there's a, yeah, there's, there's, there's exactly, there's a preference for later sleep for the, you know, adolescence and then, you know, the, um, earlier sleep for those who are older and then the middle-aged tend to get the middle amount of sleep, which ideally is 10 30 PM to 6 AM. That seems to be around the ideal. 
Very good. So, Kevin, now our topic, insomnia. We introduced that there's two main types, the primary where you can't fall asleep initially, and then the terminal where you wake up and can't get back to sleep. What causes these? Why do people have trouble with this? Well, okay, there's probably there's there's a biological causes and there's behavioral causes. Yeah, and you can have vicious cycles in biology and vicious cycles in behavior, and then they overlap here. So when it comes to the behavioral cause, the reason in general people have trouble attaining sleep is because they're making an effort to sleep. <laughs> so sleep effort ends up activating us. And it's kind of a perverse process because the more, then the more effort you make, the more awake you get. And so I like to say that sleep tends to benefit from benign neglect. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense in which you don't want to be overly concerned about how much sleep you're getting. It's, if you have an allowing attitude towards whatever happens in sleep, and you just make do the best you can to actually be in bed for about eight hours, that's about the most you can do. To be in bed, to be you know, thinking, okay, if I'm lying here calmly, at least I'm not taxing my brain. And so it's going to be similar to sleep. Um, a neurologist friend of mine uh, has said that when he was with, seeing patient sleep studies, that much of the time when people thought they weren't sleeping, about 50% of the time they actually were sleeping. But they're going in and out and they don't remember it. You know, and so um, you know, I'm not sure, you know, I, I remember... I remember my father saying when he went into, he had general anesthesia for a surgery and he was praying the rosary as, a, as it was coming in. He was in the middle of the Hail Mary. In the first half, the Hail Mary is before the surgery. And then the second half, he finished the Hail Mary and he realized the surgery was done. <laughs> but he had no awareness at all of this intervening time, which was several hours. And that can happen even when you're awake in bed, that you're having these, you're flitting in and out. And it can seem like one continuum, but in fact, you might notice, in fact, if you're, you shouldn't be watching the clock, you shouldn't view a clock, but you might notice that time seems to be flying. And it's like, whoa, this is a lot of time moving by. It's actually because you're in and out of consciousness. That's not the best sleep, but it's also not nothing. So it's like, there is something about it that, um, so, and so also if people have, um, too much effort to control sleep in any way, you know, like if you think if I don't do X, I'll never sleep. Well, then you're setting yourself up from insomnia if for some reason you can't do X one night, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever that might be. So it's like, okay, I have a complicated stretch routine that I do before I go to bed. And if I don't do that, I just can't sleep. That's mm -hmm. you're setting yourself up. So you don't want to have anything that you can't do without, except perhaps darkness, uh, you know, when it, when it, and that you can usually control to some extent. Um, okay. So that's like the, the psychological cause. You know, you, you can even define insomnia as a phobia of insomnia. <laughs> so that if you're afraid of it, it's going to happen. And if yes. you don't really care and you're just like open and allowing, it's the attitude. It's the allowing, accepting attitude. That's the setting for sleep to just come in. Because when you think about what do people who fall asleep easily do when they get in bed? Well, they're just open and allowing. They're just ready for sleep to occur and they don't try. They just go into bed and it happens. So there's also a kind of deeper sense there of just trusting your body. That if you stop fighting, stop trying to control, eventually your body will get very good at just letting sleep happen. So that addresses the psychological cause. Um, there's, I don't know if you have any questions on that, but there's also the physiologic yes, cause. Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, like when I've dealt with my terminal insomnia, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night, I just try to let it be. You know, sometimes it's like, okay, I'm fighting letting it be. I'm thinking, am I letting it be enough? Am I doing this? Or, and it, it just doesn't come. Like I've laid there for three to four hours in that state a couple nights in a row. And, you know, because uh, I've heard you talk in other, um, on your podcasts about this. And I think I'm letting it go, but I'm not letting it go. So what what's going on there? How do I know if I'm doing it right? <laughs> Yeah, sometimes when there are acute problems with insomnia like that, you need to take a step back and see about how you can be practicing certain attitudes and ways of attending, not in bed. Mm. Yeah, so you, you need to take an indirect training approach because it can be really hard in bed to learn new skills. Like while you're there, it's like, is that that's a hard time to develop something. 
Mm. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Mindfulness for Insomnia, which is one of the best jobs I've ever seen of teaching people the remote practice for the attitude that allows for sleep. But essentially, it's using the observing mind, not the thinking mind. Mm. And you're trying to simply be allowing and observing with a lot of emphasis on sensations and thoughts come and go. The breath comes and goes. You need to get in touch with this moment of the inhale, feeling it and letting it go as the exhale happens. So the breath kind of trains us breath by breath and how to let go. And so you don't need to control the breath in any way. You don't, in fact, it's better not to. Let it happen. That also is letting the breath just take place on its own is like a, it's almost like a symbol or a metaphor for how sleep happens too. You know, it, you don't have to, con breathing is a process that happens without your controlling it and you can just observe it. And sleep is the same. It's just a process that happens without your doing anything to make it happen. And so the, the right relationship to the breath can help with the right relationship to sleep itself. We're going to take a break now and come back to more practical ways to approach difficulties that you and us may have with insomnia here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Doctor and our guest, Dr. Kevin Majors, talking about what else, sleep and its absence, insomnia. Now, Kevin, I've got to admit, when the nurse tells me before I walk into my patient's room that, oh, by the way, Mrs. Smith wants to talk to you about her problem sleeping. I really want to make a reason not to go in that room mm -hmm. because uh, as an OBGYN, I'll bet I share this fear with a lot of physicians. I don't feel like I have a lot of things to offer her. I can prescribe her drugs, uh, but I don't know that that's going to help. So I wonder if you could talk us through, you know, what's the role for a, the pharmacologic approach, benzodiazepines and other really psychiatric medications in helping people with insomnia? Well, it's a complicated topic. <coughs> so I, I think that benzos, which are medicines, you know, like, um, well, Valium or uh, Restoril or Clonopin or Xanax, those ones do not improve the quality of sleep, period. Yeah. And so sedation is not the same as sleep. So, so these medicines achieve sedation, but that when the cortex is sedated, it actually has trouble sleeping because <laughs> there's this there's this beautiful thing that takes place with the sleep cycles going through theta waves and delta waves and alternating to you know back and forth with, between these different kinds of waveforms. Yeah, you know, that there's a synchronizing of the cortex taking place in sleep, and you don't want it sedated. That's also a problem with antihistamines. Antihistamines are merely sedating, yeah. but that doesn't mean that they help with sleep in any way. And in fact, uh, people chronically taking antihistamines might be getting deeply deprived of sleep as they go on taking them. Mm. So th there are a few medicines that actually improve the quality of sleep. Perhaps the easiest to take is, is gabapentin. And so 300 or 600 or at most 900, but for most people it's 600 milligrams of gabapentin, usually given a couple hours before sleep. It's not a sedate, it's not about sedation. It's like a support for sleep. And there are good studies that show that you, in fact, you get better sleep on it. So that, and it has a half-life of about eight hours. Oh. So, so it does last through the night as well. So I would wish that uh, gabapentin would be a little more widely used just because the data on it's better. Uh, other things are, you know, the, the, the three are typically mirtazapine, which is also called Remeron, and uh, nefazidone, which is now discontinued, and trazodone. Those are the three that also had data that they improved the quality of sleep itself. Hmm. And so using trazodone, I think in a hospital setting could be fine. I wouldn't give Remeron there, but but you could use you know fifty to one hundred fifty milligrams of trazodone. The lowest dose is the best. But I would really be wary of uh, of benzodiazepines or medicines like Ambien 
So mm-hmm. although they can have their place, uh, I think there can be occasions, but in general, you just have to be more careful with them because they're more habit forming and they don't help with the sleep quality. You know, it's in my area of endometriosis and a lot of inflammatory conditions, it's sort of the rage now for patients to be taking low-dose naltrexone. And I wonder if you've encountered that as a sleep aid, because many of them will say, oh, my pain is better and I sleep better. Is that something you have That's, much experience with? No, I have definitely used low-dose naltrexone uh, you know, in managing cravings with people. Um, and it's wonderful for managing cravings. So I, I'm a fan of the medicine, uh, oh. but I've never used it uh, for sleep itself. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. What about over-the-counter um, medications and supplements, especially melatonin? That's the, the big one I read about. Yeah. And so melatonin is probably a safe medicine to use for sleep. It does seem like it acts as a hypnotic so that it does make it easier to fall asleep and it can make it somewhat easier to stay asleep. That said, we don't really know when you're giving someone melatonin or if they're just taking it over the counter, what is their natural levels of melatonin anyway? And so, you know, people might be very high on the melatonin level. So do you want to be adding more to it? Uh, and so there are, uh, you know, questions about what does too high a melatonin level do as well. The simplest thing is if you're going to take melatonin, try not to take it for a long time. You can try to um, do a low dose first. 0.3 milligrams is more the physiologic dose. Hmm. And we just don't know what 10 milligrams does. You know, and there's concerns that it could suppress melatonin levels once people stop it. But again, there's not much evidence of that either. It seems like it's not too habit forming. But we just know that the physiologic dose, the equivalent is 0.3 milligrams. And there are makers of melatonin that know that, and they actually sell a 0.3 milligram. But something, at least if it's probably safe, if it's under three milligrams. And so sometimes people can do, there are delayed release ones also where you get two humps. And so there's, you know, you can get like a one milligram delayed release uh, or a two milligram delayed release. The natural peak of melatonin is at 3 a.m. And so it's just going up as you're trying to fall asleep. You know, if you're trying to fall asleep at the golden air, you know, time of right around 10, 1030. So it's not that you necessarily have to have high levels of melatonin at 1030 in order to sleep. But if you take it, you should do it 45 to 90 minutes before attempting sleep. So melatonin, probably very safe. There's actually interesting data on its antiviral effects. So there are, there's, um, so who knows if there are other benefits to melatonin? I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Another safe And then there are some is, others. Yeah. Yeah. So 5-HTP. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and you can, you can get that easily. It's a precursor for serotonin, which is a precursor for melatonin. You know, melatonin is made out of serotonin in your pineal gland. And so if you boost 5-HTP levels, you might get more serotonin and therefore melatonin. And it does seem like it helps people you know, with, with, with sleep, um, at least in some cases. You can also get natural things like um, passion flower or uh, valerian. Some people find those very effective. So people can experiment with these herbal ways of doing it. Um, some people find ash. I think it's ashwagandha. There's just different things that people can try. Magnesium, magnesium is a wonderful relaxing thing. Now, probably physiologically, the best time to get magnesium for your circadian rhythm is in the morning, but you can also get a dose of it at bedtime. You know, and so something like 200 or 300 milligrams at bedtime can can help some people feel very relaxed and and attain sleep. GABA, you can get GABA supplements, and those are also very safe. And you can take those, you know, uh, an hour or so before trying to, you know, get to bed. But I really wish that people would try these kind of natural things before trying other meds because they really can work. And so, and if they work, they're easy to stop. There's not any issues really with toxicities. At least it's they're at least they're much much safer. Now, five HTP, you don't want to take it while on an SSRI because you can get serotonin syndrome. I should mention that. But if you're, um, that's the only that's the only one to be careful with. 
Well, Kevin, uh, move, moving on a little bit, uh, as an OBGYN, I, I tend to stay up at night sometimes. And the next morning after staying up at night, I have trouble getting through my surgery schedule because I want to just go eat the kitchen counter and the doctor's lounge. I'm so mm-hmm. hungry. Is, is that just me using that as an excuse to eat? Or does sleep deprivation uh, affect our hunger and our, and our other hormones? Yeah, so it, it does. And so when you're sleep deprived, your ghrelin is going to increase and make you more hungry. And leptin will decrease, make you feel less full. So also it's interesting, ghrelin increases your body's ability to have non-REM sleep. <laughs> So to get the restorative sleep. So there's a complicated relationship here. I I wouldn't make sleep decisions based on ghrelin and leptin levels, Mm -hmm. but there are, and just know that you might have more ghrelin, but that doesn't mean you need to necessarily eat more, Mm -hmm. you know, especially not to eat more carbohydrates or processed sugars. Sure. So, you know, so I think that it's just going to come and go. Ghrelin does help you to be more alert, and that might be part of why you get more of it after not sleeping well, uh, because it, it increases your ability to remember things. And so, ghrelin is a cognitive booster. So, so it's like so. Ghrelin actually does a lot of good things, and it might be helping you to attain a, a, you know, ability to work the next day, and then to get better sleep the next night. Interesting. If if a person goes with interesting without without sleep for, uh, say, you get no sleep in one night. The next night, when they go to bed, they're going to sleep very deeply because you acquire a sleep debt, but you have two types. One is for REM sleep and one is for non-REM sleep. Non-REM is a restorative one, and you pay that first. So the morning after you sleep that first night of sleeping again, you feel wonderful and rested. The next night, however, when you wake up, you're going to feel tired because that's where you paid your REM deficit. So, so you end up then feeling like you just dreamt the whole night. Uh, it's interesting that they, they find that in sleep studies and it really fits with when I talk to students and things about when they pull all nighters, sure. they've all, I've never had anyone come back and say, otherwise they all come back and say, you know, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, the, uh, you, when you're talking about ghrelin though, I just have to say, it reminds me also of, um, it may be better and there's different opinions on this, but it may be better to avoid eating for a few hours before bedtime, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a lot of work for the body to process food. Yeah. You know, and, and so you don't want it to have to be doing that work at the same time as trying to accomplish sleep. So it seems like if you could finish eating a few hours before you go to bed, your mitochondria are happier with that. And you end up getting better sleep and higher energy the next day. So that's just one thing to say that, um, and fa- fasting actually improves sleep. So it's, it's, you know, that when people are fasting, they tend to sleep much better and maybe that's the ghrelin, but uh, so there are interesting things here that, you know, just to say some of these behaviors that go with sleep. Well, now you're talking about sleep hygiene, Kevin, what are some of the, the main enemies of effective sleep, uh, besides eating right up until the bedtime? Well, the, you know, number one is caffeine. Uh, and so people need to probably, you know, see for them, for them, when is the end of their caffeine window? And for some people it's going to be 2 PM and some people noon, but you have to, you know, see, um, the half-life of caffeine is something like, what is it? You know, it might be like six hours or something, but the quarter life is much longer. Yeah. And so you actually have like, you, you, it's like, it could be 12 hours or something. It's been a long time since I saw that, that data, but all I remember is being surprised at how long the quarter life of caffeine is. So you still have a quarter of it you know, in you if, when you go to bed. So that also can be why people wake up early you know, is because of this effect of the quarter life of caffeine, you know, that it's still present and active. So I remember a patient once who was tell, you know, came to me and was saying his sleep was terrible. And when I asked about caffeine, he's like, oh, I have a, a pot of coffee at around 10 p.m. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, that's probably something to address there. And we, we talked about it. And then the next time I saw him, and he was sleeping much better. <laughs> so sometimes there are just simple things. You know, any, like caffeine, his purpose is to reduce sleep pressure so you stay alert in the daytime. 
But of course, that's going to make it hard to fall asleep at night. So if, if caffeine near the hour of sleep is an enemy, what are some more enemies that our listeners should yeah, eliminate? Bright light. Ah. So especially blue light. So um, watching like you know iPad screens and computer screens are probably the worst things, you know, because the power of the blue light in them is certainly enough to trigger these melanopsin you know cells that shut off melatonin production. And some people have genetic variants that actually make them more sensitive to the effects of, of light at night. And so there are um, ways you can research that. I mean, with 23andMe, or uh, you can you can see do you ha- do you have those SNPs, you know, that uh, relate to the problems with melatonin. Um, that's handled through blue light glasses mm-hmm. and using different settings on your phone and iPads and computers to take away the the, the blue light. Also, if I could do one thing to improve, you know, the quality of the world, it would be to get rid of those really white, blue, compact fluorescent light bulbs worldwide and LED, those white, blue LED bulbs. You know, I think those are terrible for sleep. It's just harsh, bluish light, you know, and, and, you know, that's like designed to wake us up, you know, and so you should, the more incandescent spectrum you know, like the 3000 Kelvin, warm amber colors, mm. and ideally not more than really 40 watts, especially in things like bathrooms, you know, just to, you know, so you're not like shutting off your melatonin production with this excessively bright light. I don't think we should too, we shouldn't be too careful about it. Yeah. Probably two to three hours before bedtime. Some, some people find benefits of getting glasses like true dark glasses, which have more than 99% of blue and green light filtered out. You could also just get any kind. There are other like kinds of blue filtering glasses that do about 70%, but they don't look funny. They're not amber colored. They're just like clear. And, uh, and those also can be just fine for a lot of people. Or for a lot of people, it's just making sure you don't have these harsh blue bright lights. Overhead lights are worse. It's better to have, you know, uh, like table lamps and side table lamps and task lighting rather than bright overhead light lights up the whole room. The other thing that's pretty cool is if you get exposed to sunlight around sunset, it makes you more resilient to other lights in the night. So it's a wonderful thing for your circadian rhythms to see bright light in the morning by going outside for like 10 minutes soon after, within a half hour of waking. The ideal thing is you go for a run. Uh, you know, right you know, within a half hour of waking when the sun is you know, perhaps just rising. But that does a wonderful job of synchronizing your circadian rhythms. But then also being outside around sunset does another great job of synchronizing circadian rhythms. It actually makes you more resilient. What about in the winter in, northern, in the Northern Hemisphere, in the North, like where we live, you know, Boston and Indiana, and sunset is so much earlier? Should we yes. look at a bright light even after normal sunset no. at those times of the year? I wouldn't do that. There's something so unique about the sun; it's very hard to reproduce. But you can, you know, you can use those bright lights, the ten thousand lux lights, um, in the morning. Yeah, so in the morning it's okay, but we never want people using those after noon, meaning after twelve p.m. Uh, so you know, so I think that. Some people are susceptible to having like hypomanic or manic symptoms just from being exposed to those 10,000 lux lights in the afternoon. At least that's what early data said. So normally tell people at like 8 a.m. or earlier, you do the bright light uh, for 30 minutes where it's near, you're not looking at it. It's just to the side of your field of view mm-hmm. while you're working on a computer or doing something else or eating breakfast. What about white noise? Like I've always wanted to sleep with a fan on. What's the deal with white noise and sleep for some people? I think that um, in the the research I've seen, in general, white noise is helpful. So earplugs and white noise are considered to be helpful, actually. Mm. So the brain seems to have a hard time habituating to sounds in the night. Uh, and so we're just, the brain is built to be a little bit on alert when you're sleeping for sounds. So if you're pretty sure that you're in a secure environment, you can help probably by having white noise or earplugs if you need them. Never want to create some, but some people do benefit from them and it's not bad. And what about the temperature while sleeping? Should we be cooler versus warmer? I, I, I find I don't sleep well if I'm too hot. 
Yeah. So they say that for the room, the best temperature for sleep is 64 degrees. Ah. Which I think it's incredibly cold. So, um, <laughs> but it's been repeated again and again in studies that people sleep better when it's cooler. There are also these pads you can get from a company called Chili Sleep that actually have cold water underneath you, and that they, and it keeps it cold all night long, and they can get down to fifty-five degrees. But those actually, I, I know really good doctors who recommend that to people who have trouble sleeping and maintaining sleep. And also, the, those those devices are pretty smart because they will naturally warm up as the morning comes. Yeah, and and so it's good to have the cooler things up until two a.m., which is usually around the physiologic nadir for your body temperature, the the lowest point for the body temperature, and then your body starts warming up so that around six a.m. when you wake up, it's at the right temperature. And so these good systems also make it so that it starts getting warmer as the as the morning approaches. So with our with our aging patients, it is so very common to hear them complain about insomnia that they didn't used to have and now they have, and they can be very anxious about waking up at four thirty in the morning and unable to sleep. Listening to you, it seems like good advice would be to say, then just get up and and don't fight that. But uh, how would how would you speak to those listeners that are, you know, in their later years that are struggling with criminal yeah. insomnia like that? They they might need to experiment with going to bed earlier, because it might be that their body is wanting to have just more sleep before midnight. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that that could be one thing, but there could be other things going on. You know, I didn't mention, but I, I would like to you know to mention it. Um, food intolerances. Because those can become more common as people go through life. You sure. can accumulate them as you go through life. And food intolerance is a very commonly missed reason for insomnia. And so if pe- people who are sensitive to gluten or dairy or um, like less common ingredients that are in processed foods, so that just they should avoid all processed foods, or histamine, those those people will have inexplicable insomnia, you know, and, but it'll be episodic and they won't be able to figure out like, sometimes I just can't sleep at all. I'm completely awake. (sighs) And then they might notice like with histamine, like, oh, it's after I had soy sauce, you know, and, and then they realize that, oh yes, also if I have certain types of cheese or meat, you know, or certain types of red wine, and then they start putting it together like, oh, wow. And they, and so if anyone has episodic inexplicable insomnia, you do want to rule out, I think, in your mind, food intolerances. So you can just like, you know, read more about histamine intolerance, see if you have other symptoms, um, you know, headaches, itchiness, gastroesophageal reflux. Those are all other signs of like histamine intolerance, you know, and then whatever might be the cause, you go off those foods for a time and see, does your sleep improve? But, and with some things that might take a while for it to improve, especially with histamine intolerance, it can take several weeks you know, as your body processes the built-up histamine. But uh, but gradually, it does improve. So I just want to say that, too, with older people, that could be a reason. And on that yeah. note, I think we are full of practical advice. Thank you for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We look forward to having you back again. And we'll be back with the answer to the medical trivia question after the break. Welcome back to the final segment of our show. It's been a great discussion with Dr. Kevin Majors, and we're going to finish on a high note always, which is the answer to the Medica trivia question, Tom. So if people in their 50s average less than six hours of sleep, 10 to 20 years later, how did their risk of dementia change? Did it have no effect? Did it go up by 30% or down by 30%? And the answer is the risk for dementia went up by 30%. So yeah, long-term effects of not sleeping enough. Yeah, another good reason to get regular and good sleep. It'll maybe decrease your chance of, of getting dementia. So, Chris, top three takeaways from this. Just This was just full of so much good advice. Yeah, another great episode with Dr. Kevin Majors. We love having him. I, I think he said early on, and it would make a great framed quotation, that we can love God while sleeping just by thinking about him as we fall asleep. And then he pointed out that then he's often our the first thing we think of when we awake. I thought that was really beautiful. 
Amen. Um, on, a, on a very practical point, uh, number two, trying to fall asleep can in many ways be the enemy of falling asleep, that we've got to allow sleep, not try to force it. Uh, and then the last thing was, I, I think, really a summary of the main enemies of sleep. And and just a couple for listeners to keep in mind, you know, caffeine close to bedtime, you need to find out a time of day after which caffeine affects your sleep. And it's probably different for all of us. Uh, the bright blue lights, especially those lights from our computer screens and our iPads and our phones, uh, bright LED lights, those can really be the enemy of good sleep. Uh, eating near sleep time can be really tough on our sleep because it takes a lot of energy to digest that food. Uh, and then lastly, when sleep becomes a problem, he pointed out, think about food and sensitivities that may be causing your sleep disturbance. And that is a great summary, Chris. And we want to thank all of you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We invite you to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And please rate our show and help other listeners find us. Uh, check us out on our own website at drdoctor.org. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment right here with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off till your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.